2015, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9 today. We observe uh, the Lord's Supper uh, this year, every other month, six times. Uh, and on the days that we do, we really try to plan the service to all lead up to that. So even this sermon and uh, everything else leading up to the Lord's Supper. First Peter chapter 3, let me just say this before we look at it. Last Sunday morning, Dr. Ligon Duncan, the Chancellor of Reformed Seminary, was here. He preached. He preached from Psalm 119. And that sermon's on our website now if you didn't get to hear it. But also there was a luncheon for officers afterwards where we had about, oh, 45 or 50 minutes with, with Ligon uh, doing a Q&A session that was very good. And it's also on the website, and I'd urge you to listen to that as well. Now before I read the passage from 1 Peter 3, just by way of reminder, since it's been a couple of weeks since we were last together with 1 Peter, He's writing to believers who were going through very difficult times. The culture was very hostile toward the Christian faith at that time. And so he is describing the powerful testimony of Christian submission. He's written about the needs to display that Christian submission with bad government and with hard, difficult bosses. And then he talked about marriage and being married to an unbeliever, an unbelieving husband with a believing wife, and how husbands are to to treat their wives, lest their prayer be hindered. But now he's going to shift gears, and he's going to give a final word about relationships, and this applies to all of us, to everyone who names the name of Christ. So follow with me, if you will. I'll just read two verses, 1 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. In Jesus' name, amen. So verse 8 begins with the word finally. In other words, to sum up all that's been said. He's summing up what he's been saying about human relationships. Want to know what Christian maturity looks like? Here it is. He's going to describe six qualities that ought to be displayed in the life of a believer. And he says to finally all of you. It applies to all who name the name of Christ. He gives these six instructions for us as we follow Christ. And we'll just go through them briefly as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. First, he says, have unity of mind or be like-minded. You cannot force people to be like-minded. You cannot coerce it. You cannot program it. Alexander the Great had a vision that he wanted all the world to be one, to be together, to be of one mind, and he tried to do it by force with his armies. The Lord Jesus prayed that we, his followers, would be one. He did it with the cross. When Alexander the Great died, his empire was immediately divided up among his four principal generals. And then shortly after that, it was divided up again. There was no unity. When Christ was crucified just 50 days after the resurrection, the Holy Spirit came on his followers with power and his army became one. So we're to be like-minded. That's not uniformity where we all look the same and speak the same. It's talking about cooperation amidst diversity. 
The human body is given as the metaphor in the New Testament for this unity and diversity. You think of the parts of your body and how different some of them look, your hands and your feet and your legs and your arm and your neck and your ears and your eyes, and yet they function together. That's unity. Think of all the differences. We bring in a local church, like this church, differences of age, gender, race, education, your experience, natural talents and abilities, spiritual giftedness, spiritual maturity, family context, political views, neighborhoods, school systems, opinions about everything, including how things are supposed to be done in the church. Now, all of those differences can cause conflict in a church or they can enrich it. But we must be unified as far as purpose, unity of mind. R.C. Sproul in his book on First Peter says, discarding our individual differences is not required for unity. The point is to have agreement on substantive matters. That's the key, substantive matters. And he says, choosing colors of the carpet and the walls is purely a matter of personal preference. The unity of which Peter writes is that we should be of one mind in our confession of the essentials of the Christian faith, that there's one God who exists in three persons, that Jesus is his son, that Jesus became a man, that he lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross as a substitute for others, that he rose from the grave, that there will be a day of judgment. Those are the essentials, some of the essentials of the Christian faith. So the early church was at its best when they were marked by like-mindedness. Acts chapter 4 said the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and one mind. So that's the first quality. He's going to list six. That's the first one, unity of mind. Secondly, we're to have sympathy. We are to have sympathy or compassion. It's not the idea of feeling sorry for somebody else. It's to enter into their feelings. To have compassion is to, to share the feelings of others. We believe a parallel passage to this in the Bible is Romans 12. We are told there to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. What's our natural tendency when another person rejoices? To be envious or to compare. Oh, you're all happy. You got whatever it is you wanted. I didn't get that. So to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep, to enter into their celebration, to enter into their grief or whatever's causing them to weep, is Christian compassion. Jesus is our example. It says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Uh, I, if you're like me, then last Thursday on the 13th anniversary of 9-11, you perhaps watched some of the programs on the Discovery Channel and the History Channel and things that commemorated that and video and I set the TiVo and recorded about five of those and, and watched some of those disturbing images again. But I heard uh, something I have not heard in all the years when they do this on the anniversary, and it was some recordings by the emergency operators of phone calls that had been received before the towers fell from people trapped in the building as to what they should do. And one I found extremely disturbing. They, it was just audio. In fact, you could not even hear the caller on this one. You could only hear the emergency operator. And apparently from the other phone calls, the, the instructions by the manual were to tell people to lock themselves in their office, do not go into the hallways, block the vents underneath the, uh, underneath the door so that fumes could not come in, and wait for help to come. 
course, we know now that's terrible advice. But at that moment, that was the right advice, I guess. Anyway, so this, on this particular call, this operator got very irritated with the caller who was in a panic saying, what should I do, what should I do? I don't know if it was a man or a woman on the phone that was the caller, but the operator was a man, and he said, I said you should stay in the office. Lock the door, shut the, do not go out into the hallway, help is on the way. And of course I'm knowing moments later that building's coming down, the proper thing would have been run for your life, get out of there however you can if there's a possible stairway, then go down it. But it was amazing, and at the end, in an angry tone, the operator said, I'm hanging up now, basically don't call back again. And I thought, that person unknowingly was minutes away from dying. And look how that operator treated that man or woman. Perhaps before we are harsh to other people and uncaring and short with them, we should for a moment put ourselves in their shoes, what they may be facing. That is sympathy. That's what it's talking about, to enter into and sense with and feel with what the other person is feeling. A third quality here is brotherly love, it says in verse 8. When you think of the description of God's type of love in 1 Corinthians 13, we might conclude, well, there isn't much of that around. Larry Crabb, who's an author and counselor, he wrote, Nice people are not hard to find. Churches, neighborhood parties, civic clubs are full of friendly people. Gracious people who would never make you the object of an unkind gesture are known to all of us. Good people, responsible people, kind people, moral people, generous people exist in tolerable numbers. But loving people are in short supply. You can be very nice and not loving. You can have great manners and not be loving. All of that may be nothing more than layers of self-protection. But are you a loving person? How can you become such? Well, by being his child growing in Christ. The main metaphor for the church in the New Testament is the, is the family, that we are adopted as God's sons and daughters through faith in Christ, that he now is our father and we as Christians are brothers and sisters. That means, in a general sense, that I am closer to a Christian brother who's in Nigeria or Singapore or China than I am with the unbelieving neighbor who may be right next door. 1 John says the litmus test of whether we know God at all is by this we know we have passed out of death to life because we have love for the brethren. Fourth quality is a tender heart. It means to be kind-hearted, not hardened, not mean, not thoughtless. And Jesus was described this way. It's, I don't know about you, but it's tempting as I get older and have gotten older when kind of you have your close friends and you're not looking for more. You know what I mean? Most people, if they have three or four close friends, that's it. And then they have a smaller group, maybe up to about 30, and they kind of move through life with that group and they don't want to expand that group. It's tempting just to see others as a nameless multitude out there and kind of ignore them. Nancy Ortberg as an author, and at one time she was an emergency room nurse. One night she wrote about how she witnessed an astonishing act of leadership. She said it was about 10.30 p.m. The emergency room was a mess. I was finishing up some work on the charts before going home. 
The doctor with whom I loved working was debriefing a new doctor, a much younger doctor, who had done a very good, competent job. He was telling him what he'd done well and what he could have done differently. Then he put his hand on the young doctor's shoulder and said, When you finished, did you notice the young man from housekeeping who came in to clean the room? There was a complete blank stare on the young doctor's face. And the older doctor said, His name is Carlos. He has been here for three years. He does a fabulous job. When he comes in, he gets the room turned around so fast so that you and I can get our patients, next patients in quickly. His wife's name is Maria. They have four children. Then he named each of the four children and gave each child's name, age. The older doctor went on to say, Carlos and his family live in a rented house about three blocks from here in Santa Anta. They have been here from Mexico for about five years. His name is Carlos, he repeated. Then he said, next week I would like for you to tell me something about Carlos that I don't already know. Okay, let's go check on the rest of the patients. Now, it's possible for us to learn to become more compassionate. We can do that. This is not a huge thing, but the Holy Spirit, with his help and our awareness, we can care more about people. Sometimes it just starts by asking about another person's situation. Now, I'm in a unique vantage point as a pastor, and I know that. But a number of years ago, there was a family that had been here, and they were moving away. They were moving to another state where he had taken a job, and I went to their house as they were packing up. I had not gotten to speak to them in a while, and I went by their house, and when he and I walked outside, I said, look, I want to ask you something as your pastor. Do you have any money? And he said, I don't have enough money to get a haircut. A couple of phone calls and the very fund that we're using today, the deacons fund and our deacons got involved, helped pay for the move, helped supply for the family. Now, I'm in a unique position. I'm not saying everybody can go do that. But we can ask questions. We can inquire about people rather than just assuming everything's fine and, and moving on. Fifth quality is a humble mind. Not much on this. Humility is knowing who you are and the source of your strength basically frees us up to love others because our security is not whether this person accepts me or not. My security is with Christ. I am loved by him. Uh, I am secure with him. So I can love another person because I'm not dependent on them accepting me or giving me the response I need. Last, forgiveness. This touches all the others. Being able to forgive others is a sign of spiritual maturity. It's the spiritually immature person who holds a grudge who can't forgive, who can't let it go. Remember what happened when the temple guards came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? He had gone there to pray. He had taken a handful of his disciples with him into the garden. He prayed all night there. On the night, he would later be arrested in the early morning hours. And Peter is one of those, Peter who's writing this, was one of the four disciples that Jesus had with him, the three or four that were there, and when the temple guards, this is not the Roman guards, this is the temple guards, when they came to get Jesus, what did Peter do? Remember how friendly he was to the, to the high priest servant? He cut his ear off, right? Do you really think he took the sword and said, I'm going to aim for his ear? No, he was trying to, he was trying to kill him. He was trying to, to come down right on his head from all indication. It was a glancing blow and chopped his ear off. And Christ rebuked him for that. 
That's Peter who's writing these words to see the change now. And so he tells us that we should not return insult for insult, so to speak, that we should not repay evil for evil, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. There's Paul, who was the man who'd used every means at his disposal to oppress and persecute early Christians, and he becomes a believer. And he never used human weapons to fight God's battles after that. And he writes in Romans 12, again, the parallel passage to 1 Peter 3, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. And so we, we are to be forgiving. How can this happen? I mean, how in the world can this happen? Well, it only happens when we come to know Christ, when we know him as our Redeemer and the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us. And then we are his children and we progress in the process called sanctification. And we don't get there in six steps and we don't get there in any eight or ten sermon series on the subject. It's an ongoing process. Uh, I've been in the process of sanctification since I was in high school, a long time. I wish it got easier. I remember as a brand new believer thinking, man, I'm looking forward to a year or two from now when all these temptations are beyond, or I've gone beyond them. I'm still waiting. You know, it's about 35 years later or more, 40 years, and it is just as difficult as before from a human standpoint. The temptation is just as real. The fiery darts of the evil one are just as hot. But this is the ongoing process of Christian growth. That's what the Bible calls sanctification. And the overflow, as we do what Ligon Duncan said last week, meditate on God's word, pray God's word back to him, we fellowship with other Christians, we partake of sacraments like the Lord's Supper in faith, and we are strengthened in our faith. The overflow will be these qualities. These things will be seen. The compassion, the brotherly love, the, the unity of mind, and, and so forth. With those thoughts in mind, let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you redeem us. You redeem us and you change us as you prepare us to spend eternity with you. We would pray that you would use your word to teach and to rebuke and to train in righteousness and that you would use us toward that end. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's prepare to come to the Lord's table by standing and singing the power of the cross. Let's stand together.